Primero quiero decir, uh, porque yo dije antes en la misa, estuve dando um, absolución en general por todos que no pudieran ir a confesar, porque cuando no hay suficiente tiempo con tres sacerdotes y es imposible oír todos, la gente no debe estar prohibido a comulgar porque no pudiera confesar. Entonces yo di la absolución y pidiendo que puede tener un minuto a dar gracias a Dios por su gran misericordia. Entonces todos pueden comulgar este día, ¿ok? Está bien. Now you may know this, but in case you don't, um, I, I want to share this to put a context around all this today. Uh, the first day I entered theology in the seminary, back in, uh, ooh, uh, a long time ago, <laughs> my professor of scripture, who was amazing, uh, asked us to take out our Bibles, which I did, we did, and he asked us to read through, and then he had people read the first chapter of Genesis and then the second chapter of Genesis, which I had read many times before, and I, you know, I, I, I knew the text, but it never occurred to me to step back and look at what I just read. The first chapter of Genesis is the first creation story, but there's a second creation story in chapter 2. And the first chapter starts and says it's a, there's, there was nothing, and then God started the creating, and it took six days of creation, the seventh day he rested. The first day he started separating the dark from the light, and then he uh, put the sun and the moon, and then he started, the, started in the creation of the world with the waters, and then the fish that teemed in the waters, and then the birds in the air. Gets all the way to the sixth day, and on the sixth day, the last thing he makes is what? Man and woman. The last thing. Immediately following chapter 2, it's another creation story. And who's it start with? Who's first? Adam. Where does it come from? He's just there. And then the scripture says clearly, God was trying to make a, a, someone to be his a partner in life. So he started to create the animals. And um, I think this is where a little scripture humor comes in, but um, he's got Adam, and then he starts creating the animals and takes each animal that he creates to Adam for Adam to give a name to the animal. And it kept saying, but he never found in any of those animals a suitable partner. So this part I'm filling in. He, he must have made a giraffe and gave it to Adam. He said, oh, no, the neck's too long. And then he gave a porcupine. Oh, I'm staying away from that. And then he gave a hippopotamus way too big, et cetera, et cetera. And he gets to the end, and finally he casts a deep sleep, right? Right? Casts a deep sleep on the man and takes out the rib from the man, one rib, and takes the earth and forms it around the man. He creates a woman. He blows his breath his ruah, a breath of life and spirit into her. She comes alive. He gives her to him, and he says, at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she shall, she shall be called woman, for out of her man she came in. And that's how creation took place. Now, obviously, the second one is a story off the chart. It's uh, silly to think it was uh, a rib from the man. But, but, but apart from that, the, he asked us, what did you just read? Tell me anything that you recognize in this. Is there anything that doesn't fit? And we're all scratching our head. And he says, how about this? The entire order of creation is opposite. In the first story, everything is made and then man and woman. In the second story, man and then everything is made and then woman. 
So which one happened? And he said, that's right. Who knows? And besides, maybe it's not a book like scientific book about creation and order, but maybe there's something more in God's Word, bigger. It's, it's, it's grabbing the mystery of creation and, and trying to describe it as if we know what happened millions of years ago. And if we, we know what God did and what His intention was, we try to grapple with this mystery. And both stories tell us a whole bunch of things, although they can't both be true because they're exactly opposite. So I say that because... I think the scriptures are an amazing book. You know, all of us at my age, I'm 73, so anybody who's anywhere within 10 years younger than me and certainly older, what did the church tell us when we were kids? Don't read the Bible. It's too difficult. Am I right? Did you hear that? Do not read the Bible. It's too difficult. And that advice was right in some ways. Now, we've had a lot of instruction in the Bible, especially since Vatican II, and we've gotten a whole bunch of tools to read the Bible. And if you go on to usccb.org, I'll say it again, usccb.org, you punch into that and you, you can find the tab that opens up the entire Bible to you, every book of the Bible. And the best part is you put on, say, uh, the book of Daniel, and it'll open up and it'll say introduction and all the books. So you can go to chapter 10 or chapter 2 or the introduction, which I highly recommend that you do, because it tells when it was written, to whom it was written, what the circumstances were, and all kinds of things. And I have to say, as often as I've, I've never read the entire Bible every word through, I don't think I could do it. I think I'd faint or something. But I have read a lot of it. And we get three cycles over the three years and two cycles during the year, the, the weekdays for two years in a row, one and two. So we read a lot of the Bible now. But I have to say, a lot of it is very hard to decipher. Even the historicity of it is, is difficult. So I say all that as an introduction. Now, if John were here born today and were writing a gospel, I don't think he, I'm not sure if he'd write it out. I think he'd want to make a movie because a movie is much more visual. A, a movie... I think it's, it's easier to understand when you get visual stuff. I heard a teacher once say to me that he was teaching the kids, and he said, oh, this is how you teach them. You don't just lecture to them. You get them to write what you want them to know. You get them to speak it out loud, and then they hear it, and they see it. So you use four senses when you get them to teach. Four senses is better than one, just hearing. And he said, when you do that, you give them a lot more ways to get at that, whatever you're teaching, and to understand it. Um, how many remember the movie, the, the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments? You didn't see it? Oh, please, with Moses and all the miracles and everything? Remember the scene when God tells Moses, okay, you are to go down and with that rod strike the sea, and it will open, and I will... Uh, make that land passable for the Jews to, to flee the Pharaoh. So he goes down to the sea and he touches it and, and the sea opens up and um, you can go to Universal Studios and you can see the little mock area that they do that. But it, it was a great visual. It, you, this sea just opened up and, it, and then it was like a, this foaming and spinning seas, but there was a complete corridor 
and the land got dried out with the wind, they walked through, and then the sea came back down. Now, if you saw that, you never forget it. Now, that visual is just incredible. And I think John would have done visuals like that, except that they didn't have movies then. So what did they do? They wrote stories that were so visual that, that facts that were, it didn't matter if they weren't the truth. It, 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 because the truth is what they're, what's underneath it, not in the details. And I'll give you an example. This week, and this is a beside the fact, uh, we get more people coming to weekday masses during Lent. It's beautiful. Maybe uh, three times more than normal. But I wish we had ten times more than normal after Easter, because these are the stories that talk about the growth of the church and, and the glory of, of Christ raised from the dead. And we focus on the, on the penances, but we, we, we miss the glory. And so here we are in Easter, the first week. We had two stories. This is unique, uh, un pretty unique. The first reading and the gospel both were continuing stories. In other words, the story in that passage went on for three days and four for the first book. And um, I'll just look at the first one, and this is what happened. Peter and John went into this area where they were preaching, and the narrator tells us in the, in the book, in the Acts of the Apostles, that there was a crippled man that had bo been born crippled, so he had never, ever walked. So what they did was they used to him up and take him wherever he was going. So they took him and deposited him at the temple so he could beg for, for alms to, to be able to eat and to live. And then they would pick him up and take him home. So they picked him up and put him there. And on that particular day, Peter and John were walking by and the man was begging for alms. And so Peter says, looks at him intently, said the book, looked at him intently and said, gold and silver I don't have. But what I do have, I will give you. In the name of Jesus of Christ, get up and walk. And he did. And so this miraculous story of this healing. And the effect was a whole bunch of people converted, apparently. Now, this is where it gets a little more interesting, or whatever. Um, 3,000 men were baptized that day. I doubt. And the next day it said 2,000 more. I doubt it, but this is, I believe, a technique in the Bible to say, wow, wow, something huge has just happened here. Be alert. Notice it. And if you say, well, Father Perry, this is ridiculous for you to say they write something that didn't happen. Well, then check out chapter 1 and 2 of Genesis, because that's your problem. It starts right at the very beginning. I mention this because of what the Word of God reveals today. In the first reading from the Acts, it describes this early community of Christians that were so in love in their faith that they sold everything they had and lived in common. All these people in the community. Now, could you imagine it? Let's just say this half of the church got very inspired today. And um, not that everyone else wasn't, but they were super inspired. And they went out, and as they got outside, somebody said, why don't we sell everything we have and put it all together, and we'll live together, and then we'll, we'll just we'll, we'll live out of our common money, and we'll also give the extra to the poor. Do I have any takers? Sell everything you own? 
Oh, you weak of faith. I mean, so the scholars say, maybe that happened, and maybe that's a very ideal, idealized way of describing the faith of this community that just came alive, just burst into action. And maybe it's an ideal that wouldn't be bad for us to consider, not selling everything and live together, although there's some communities that try to do that today, but what about this? What about with your children or your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren, if you had a bowl in your house, and every time that anyone came over, that you said, why don't you throw your change in and we'll give it to the poor? So every day, even your great-grandchildren came over and they took 10 pennies and threw them in the bowl. And at the end of the month, you made a big thing of this. And you called them over. Maybe you had coffee or whatever, or punch, whatever for the kids. And you blessed it and said, now let's go put all this together. We're going to go give it to the poor. What a beautiful thing. If you were to form a family of faith around that, sharing what you had in common to give it to those who are in need. And that to me is maybe what that scripture is trying to say. Second reading, Peter goes on. And he takes a community that was struggling, and, but they were growing in faith, and he said, oh, please, realize what you've been given. The Lord uh, who has been raised, it gives you a faith that is forever, and nothing, nothing can destroy it, but hang on to it. And by the way, beware, because you're going to have some hard times. Don't lose the faith you've been given. It's a beautiful passage about persistence and faith. And that becomes the context of the gem of today, the story of Thomas, and the one that I think that connects with this divine mercy, and the one that Pope St. John Paul II, I think, is the reason why he chose this particular Sunday to celebrate divine mercy. And, um, and so the prayers and the readings today focus on mercy and what it means and what it should mean to us. And here's the story. You heard it. It's the only story I know of in the Gospels that include two Sundays in the story. And um, the first one is Easter itself. Now, from the other evangelists and from the collection of the four, we hear a bunch of stories of, of uh, Jesus's, not resurrection, but uh, the empty tomb and the appearances. So, Mary is met by Jesus in the garden in John's Gospel. And there's two uh, on the road to Emmaus in Luke's gospel that experienced the Lord. And they go back to tell the apostles who say that they also had experienced the Lord. So on Easter Sunday, there was this experience of the risen Lord. And the story tells us that Jesus appears and the room was locked, the doors and the windows for fear of the Jews. They were saying, the apostles, if he did that to Jesus, what are they going to do to the followers? So they locked the doors and they were in fear. And then suddenly Jesus is standing in their midst. Peace be with you. He gave the shalom. But what a shalom this was. Peter just denied him three days before. And Jesus told him, before the cock crows twice, you'll deny, deny me three times. No, 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 I'll never do that. And he says, I don't even know the man. I don't know the man. And then cussing and swearing, he says, I don't even know the man. So he denied him three times. The grief he must have felt. So he's in that upper room, locked in that room with all the others, and Jesus appears. And if I were Peter, I'd say, oops, what's he going to say to me? Ooh. And he says, peace 
be with you. And then he breathed on them, his spirit. And he said, whose sins you forgive, they're forgiven. Whose sins you retain, are retained. He gave them this power of mercy and love and forgiveness. What a gift to give this early community. And then he said again, peace be with you. Showed them his hands, his wounds. They, they got to see everything. And of course they believed. They were overjoyed. And then the scripture tells us that... Um, the narrator says, Thomas wasn't with them. He's the only one that was missing. Judas committed suicide. Um, so there were 11, but uh, only 10 showed up that day. Thomas wasn't there. And so then the scripture shifts to the next week, today, this second Sunday. And this time Thomas is with them. But you'll note what he said on the, the Sunday, or later that day or later that week, it doesn't tell us, the disciples, the apostles were all thrilled and said, we've seen the Lord. He's raised. We've seen him. And Thomas says, no, no. Unless I see him, no more than that. If I don't put my finger into the wound, I won't believe it. I got to see it myself. And that's how he was. So the following week, Jesus appears again and Thomas is there. Peace be with you. Thomas. Come here. See? Here, touch, touch the wound. Give me your hand. Put it in my side. And then Thomas's response is remarkable. Lord and my God. You can Google it later. I've Googled it more than once, and I've never found anybody else who says that in the Gospels. This profession of faith, my Lord and my God. And then... Jesus talks to him, and he says to him, um, you know, you believe because you saw this, but how blessed are those who have not seen, but they believed. And for me, hearing those words, they, they're kind of like stinging words, you know, like shame on you. You had to see to believe. You refused to believe. And you refused to believe your fellow apostles, these are the closest, my followers, you all together. And you told them who said that they saw me, and you said, I won't believe it until I see him with my own eyes and touch his wounds myself. I want the finger dug into that hole. That's what it sounds like Jesus is saying, accept that. And for the reason I gave all that introduction about the scriptures. I think John, I don't know that those words were said by Jesus. They're no, nowhere else in any of the Gospels. But it doesn't matter because whether he didn't or didn't, it still has the same meaning. And the meaning, I think, John writes, not for Thomas right there, but it's for us. So I'll say it again. Thomas, you believe because you saw. But how blessed those who have not seen and believed. Who are those people? That's us. Was anybody there that night with Thomas? I don't think so. Anybody see the crucifixion live? How about the resurrection? Anybody there for Easter Sunday? Anybody there for any of these things? No. It's 2,000 years later. And yet, look at this church. What, what are we all doing here? Why do we believe? We've heard testimony from a book. Thomas heard testimony from live people that he loved and was a brother to them, and he couldn't believe. And so I think that John is having Jesus say to us, 
will you believe without seeing, without hearing directly? Or is there a Thomas in you? Where's the Thomas? Now, I think that I have one answer to that. I'll give you two. One is Jesus' words on the cross. You know, Jesus told us in other places, you know, the, the Scripture says uh, you must love your, your family, your, those, you know. But, but I tell you, love your enemies. Bless those who hate you. Now, do we like to just not, like Thomas, believe those words and take those out and say, yeah, that's nice words, Jesus, but, you know, please. Or does he mean that? That we should pray for our enemies. Bless those who hate us. That's what he did on the cross. They spit on him. They stripped him. They beat him. They put nails through his hands and feet. They hung him up to hang and die and for three hours of bleeding to death. And, and they were still insulting him. And he says, Father, forgive them all. They know not what they do. What a thing to say. What a divine thing to say. Father, forgive them all. They know not what they do. Now, do you think that's serious? I think Jesus wants us to do that. That's the spirit, spirituality of Jesus on the cross. That's what he asks us to do. So maybe the Thomas in us doesn't want to hear those words completely. But that's the invitation. I think, too, that um, we are given, and especially this group of people, I'm talking to a unique group here, in fact, Emma asked me to pray for all those who in this group and others over the last 25 years who have died that were sincere devotees to divine mercy, you and your family members, those who are sick from among you and from this community of believers in divine mercy, but for you, the living here who are here today, for all those people over these 25 years who have had such a love and devotion to divine mercy. And I say... If there's any group that I'm talking to about divine mercy, you're the ones who are supposed to be the specialists. You're the ones who are supposed to believe it, not like Thomas, not like Thomas. But you're supposed to believe it with all your heart. And I ask you, do you? Do you believe that when God forgives, he forgives? He's not like us. We're supposed to be like God, not ask God to be like us because that would be a, a very big demotion, Okay? I have a favorite description of how I think we should be instead of how we sometimes are. And I want you to imagine you're cooking at the stove, making a big meal. You have three burners going. Only one is empty, but the stove is hot as can be. And out of the corner of your eye, you see your child or your grandchild or your great-grandchild or your great-great-grandchild come in the kitchen, and you see them going toward the stove, and you know out of curiosity, they're going to go touch that stove, and you know they're going to get burned, and you know they're going to scream and cry, and you know there's going to be a commotion. So you say, don't touch the stove. It's hot. Don't touch it. And you see them keep moving toward you. You say, don't touch it. If you touch the stove, I'm going to smack you. Don't touch the stove. So what do they do? Touch it. Ah! And so you smack them. And you, so you double hurt them. Um, told them no, they touched the stove, they got burned, now you smack them, and everybody's crying and screaming. And there would be such an easier way to do this. I've never had kids, so this is easy for me to say this stuff, but here's another way. You've got three burners going, plus the stove is hot, you see the, coming, the child coming, you know they're going to get burned, so you say this, honey, honey, 
wait, wait, wait. Don't touch the stove. It's very hot. It'll burn you. Come here. Let me show you. You take their hand. You bring it close to the stove. Ouch, 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 ouch. Don't touch it. Okay, go play in the other room. You taught them. They learned. They go away. Everybody's happy. It took you eight seconds instead of the whole house blowing up of upheaval because this other method of teaching. Don't do that or I'm going to smack you. Who is God here? Don't do that or I'm going to smack you. Don't do that or I'm going to put you in hell. Don't do that because I told you you better not sin again. And by the way, that's what we were all taught as kids. I'm sorry, we were. Am I wrong? We were taught God is an angry God when we disobey him. That's not what I hear in divine mercy. It's not what I hear from the cross. That's not what I hear from my own heart. And quite frankly, look at your own lives. If you've got more than one kid, and if you've got the good kid and then the bad kid, you've got the white sheep and then the black sheep, and how many of the white sheep say, oh, my mom or dad always favored my brother and he was such a jerk. They said, we didn't favor him. He needed more love. He needed more. And don't you think in our sin, that's what God says? They need more. More mercy, not more chastising. But I've been accused all through my priesthood, 46 years, take it or leave it or whatever. Father Perry, you can't say that. You're making people be easy with God's mercy. I say, I, I don't think they love it enough. They believe it enough. So you have this beautiful picture here, these rays of light pouring out of the house, the, the heart of Jesus, these rays of light, of mercy and love. And all I can say is this day, you've got to believe it. You can't be a Thomas. You can't be a Thomas. You've got to say, God, I take you at your word. You are that God. You do love in this way. And quite frankly, when we fall in love with it, it seems to me, we open up even more to it when we fall in love. If we're afraid of this, hmm, but if we fall in love with it, some miraculous things can happen. Today we celebrate the gift of divine mercy. And I hope before anybody goes to bed tonight, if you haven't done it already, you take a minute or two, it's the penance I gave to almost everybody, to uh, just say thank you, God. In fact, one of my favorite Spiritual writers is back in 1260, Meister Eckhart said, it's my favorite quote of all the ones that he wrote, and he wrote a lot of good ones. He said, if the only thing you ever say to God in all of your life is thank you, that's enough. And I would beg you and dare you just to say some thank yous today for the gift of his divine mercy.